thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts? Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. Hello and welcome to this very special interview with Pete Trainer, a designer, product innovator, author, strategist, applied data specialist, technologist, suicide prevention campaigner and massive music fan. He talks all over the world on creative and social technologies, data, AI and the physiological and psychological effects on their audiences. However, in 2023, he zigged when many would zag and published his second book, Calling All the Dreamers, the remarkable true story about a Britpop band called Electricy who went crashing through the music industry but were ultimately halted by technology and shifting human behaviour. Pete got in contact with me a few months ago about the book and wondered if I'd like to read it with a view to arranging an interview with Electricy. That will still happen in future, but what struck me about the book was the level of fandom he has for this little-known band from his hometown of Yeovil, and why he felt he needed to tell the story in the first place. For many of us, I felt that this would be the perfect entry level to the Electricy story and will certainly inform the direction of the interview with the band later in the year, hopefully. In this conversation, we not only talk about the book and the career of Electricy, we also get into what drives fandom, life in provincial towns, the pros and cons of technology in life, let alone the music industry, and Pete's role as a technologist and professional speaker which goes deep. One additional thing before we get into the interview. The day this episode goes out, Friday the 1st of December 2023, Pete's book Calling All the Dreamers has been released in paperback form and Electricity's debut album Beautiful Insane has been re-released because up until now it hasn't been available for reasons that will become obvious in our conversation. However, this new version has been produced using AI technology from the original studio demos from 1998. So be sure to visit electricy.co.uk or electricy.shop where you can buy it, their other music, merch and Pete's book Calling All the Dreamers. Alternatively for the book, you could also visit Pete's website trainer.fyi. But without further ado, here's my interview with Pete Trainer. Pete Trainer, thank you so much for coming on to Band Biographies. Thanks for having me. It's, 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 it's lovely to have you on. And thank you for reaching out and uh, letting me know about your book, which is Calling All the Dreamers, The Story of Electricity, which is a band that I'd never heard of. Not many people have. No. And it's, it's quite interesting because they had a top 20 single over here in the UK towards the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s. So... We're kind of we're going to get into that in a little bit, but obviously we're going to start with just just by saying that 
I'm sorry that it took me so long to get around to reading it. I've had a bit of a oh, busy no, summer. Don't, <laughs> don't say sorry. I'm just really happy that people are um, kind of consuming our project. I think it's really mm. exciting. Mm. And it's been out for um, a few months now, right? It's so much so that it's going into paperback mm. form now. Yeah, yeah. We've um, uh, it, it did really well. We we uh, launched it round about the same time as the their new album, actually, the band's new album in August, and uh, it's done really well. We we made some a few little tweaks and changes, and then there's a paperback coming out with possibly a few more stories, um, a few other Easter eggs that we've been working on as well. So that's really exciting. But the reception's been great. The reception's been great. We we did it with the expectation that. Even if one person read it, we'd be happy. So there was like no expectation. And um, like hundreds of people have been contacting us and going like, oh, I remember those guys. Like, and we came from a town like yours and, you know, oh, where did they go? And then they read the book and they go, well, they didn't actually break up. They went off to America and did like really crazy things. So yeah, yeah, to be able to tell their story with them has just been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that um that I've said to you in uh, in in text messages uh before getting on the call with you today is that you you paint a really vivid picture of kind yeah. of semi-rural Yeovil uh growing up. And um to be honest, I mean it sounds a lot like Maidstone where I, where I grew up, although we had London less than an hour away by the train. What was the local music and art scene like in Yeovil when you were growing up? Well, I mean that's so that's the relationship with electricity, really. So mm-hmm. in the in the 90s, Yeovil had a modest music scene, I think it's fair to say. We've had a few artists that have emerged. PJ Harvey mm. came through you know, Yeovil College and obviously went on to do amazing things. And we talk about that in the book. And there was a band called Elliot Green. And then in the t- surrounding towns, we had you know bands like Reef and mm. Muse from Exeter, you know, were a bit later on. But it's had a, it had a decent scene. But in Yeovil itself we didn't have a huge amount we had um you know it's a it's a pretty working class town in the 90s 80s and 90s still is Hmm. it was a pretty i don't want to use the word desolate because that's unfair because it was we had a we had a buoyant time like the the 90s was a good time we had a good pub scene but what we didn't have especially as young men um was kind of role model musicians during Britpop, we saw all the kind of provincial towns and cities outside of London launching their big bands. So like, you know, Manchester, you know, Bristol had massive attack. Like there were all these bands emerging, you know, Oasis and Blur and Pulp. And and it was so good. The music scene was so good. But Yeovil just didn't have a band Mm. until this bunch of like crazy renegades shot into the pubs, clubs and you know, various basement bars and things that we used to frequent. And they were just like, whoa, hang on a minute. These guys are really good. Like, they're not just a little bit good. They're original and they're really good. And they they were really the catalyst, I think, to a bit of a change in the Yeovil music scene and just a huge inspiration to young boys that otherwise may have, you know, fallen into drugs, gone to prison and all those things that kind of happen sometimes in these small provincial towns. So, mm. yeah, they were, they were the first, for me anyway, they were the first like huge act to emerge out of, out of Yeovil. Mm. Certainly the, certainly the first band that we admired that got a big record deal and ended up on TV. Like that was nuts. Yeah. I mean, like I say, you paint a really, really vivid picture of it and it seems to be almost like 
in places quite bittersweet you know looking yeah. back there's a few people who didn't make it a few people who went to jail that kind of thing yeah and i think that's the same for a lot of places outside yeah. of you know your major kind of urban areas there's not a lot to do but get into trouble <laughs> yeah i think that's I, right but yeah there are a few bands in there that i didn't realize were from down that way i didn't realize polly harvey was from yeah. down that way um i don't think i realized that reef were from the rest west country you know glastonbury yeah so i mean and obviously electricity the the band that the book's about i mean it seems like there was a lot of hometown or county pride for these bands and uh, was that something that was felt on a large scale or was the music scene especially in yeovil i mean was that how many of you were in that kind of scene huge so because because it's a small town so we're talking you know in the 90s 60,000 a very congregated nightlife is probably a fair thing to say like the the other thing that used to happen you know there were raves in fields and you know farms and things like that and um you know little festivals and local bands and cover bands like we weren't short of cover bands that's for sure mm. but w- we had a very it was a very intense sort of small scene so one band or artist that you know when they stand out like they really stand out yeah and very very rare like we didn't have a huge amount of that going on at all um but it was yeovil was yeovil was good like it had a good scene mm. um but it, unless you were out you know anyone from outside of yeovil just wouldn't have even known it was there sure sure i guess uh, the, what what struck me was the level of uh, i don't want to say adoration because that sounds a little bit uh you know but but like the, the hometown pride i suppose i mean yeah for me i suppose because where i grew up was so close to london you i felt a little bit more connected to the london scene and therefore kind of by association the rest of the country really or what was what was yeah. happening you know and it turns out i i looked through to see you know bands that have come out of maidstone there are none okay it's cranked out a it lot of success. it's cranked out a lot of successful sports players and actors but not much in the way of musicians you've got a guy who played in soft machine canterbury was the place for okay. like in the 70s especially but even looking at kent you've got anthrax were one of the bands that i uh that i came across i mean obviously dartford and gravesend just up the road you've got the rolling stones but nothing massively contemporary. It's really strange. Right. And I think there is that thing of like being a little bit close to London means that people move to London to yeah. do it. And obviously that doesn't happen down down where you are. So these guys were at the same kind of colleges and schools that you and your friends were at. Were yeah. they, the, they the same age as you as well? That, no, they're slightly, they're slightly older than that. Right. Um, by not like a significant amount, like five or six years or something, but it it meant when they burst onto the scene, we were just starting our kind of going out. And they'd actually, yeah. and actually Ali and Steve had been in bands together since they were at school. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nigel, Jim and Paul, who are actually from Haverford West in Wales. So they were from outside of Somerset. I think what they did for, for a number of years before they kind of burst onto the scene in, in the Southwest and, and Yeovil especially was, you know, craft a, a pretty substantial catalogue of original songs. Now that was really unusual in a town like Yeovil. We were used to bands coming on, you know, the stage at Gardens, the nightclub or whatever, or down the old barn or the butchers and performing maybe a couple of original songs and then a whole bunch of covers. 
and sort of emulating other bands like that was the big deal down there and there were some great bands doing that we'd never seen a band be able to come on stage look very original sound incredibly original like ludicrously original mm-hmm. and then have an hour's worth of material that was entirely theirs that was that was like whoa this is this is new like and it's really good as well not just kind of imitating other bands from from that era it was um it was pretty good they call themselves Britpop. i question that completely like i've i've had that conversation with them now and gone like i think you were Britpop plus like i don't think there was i don't think yeah, it's all Britpop. they kind of crib from a lot of genres and you point that out in yeah. the book quite explicitly like their yeah. influences came from not just other Britpop acts but it was hip-hop older psychedelic rock like there's a yeah. whole load of stuff in the melting pot, isn't there? So how how would you describe their sound? I mean, you say Britpop, uh, like confused. Uh, the, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it's a really difficult one to pin down. And mm. even you know, just last weekend I, I was with them and, and they played some gigs in Wales, and I was listening to some of their old stuff and going like, I think I love it because you can't pin it onto one genre. Mm. It's got a, I mean, it's got an indie rock line that runs through everything. I mean, even the first time I saw them, uh, I think it was the first time I saw them. The second time I saw them, they brought along a guy called Glenn Nichols, who was um, like a, a DJ scratcher. Yeah. So they he was scratching records over the top of tracks like Lost in Space. And that was like, okay, well, Lost in Space is an indie song, if you like, uh, like a kind of sort of pop rock indie track. And then you suddenly just thrown in this guy doing kind of beastie boy type loops over the top of your, your music. Like this, you're either really stupid or really brilliant. <laughs> and I think, you know, it just about got away with brilliant, but it wasn't, you can't pin it down to one genre. Yeah. I mean, the turntablists didn't really get popular for another few years with the new metal kind of explosion that right. happened a few years later, were they? So they were kind of ahead of the game in that respect. And unfortunately, like a lot of the bands, like a lot of bands or just artists in general that are ahead of the game, they suffer yeah. for that a little bit, don't they? I mean... They do. The, the although, story although, is... Yeovil, sorry to interrupt you, Yeovil had mm. uh, three really successful DJs that went off and did, um, you know, so there was a guy called Pablo Clements that was on the scene with that bunch of guys as well and he went off uh with the beastie boys and then went on to co-found wow. uncle like so okay. you know so there was there was that there were those kind of artists like kicking around town um who were working with the you know the various musicians and there was one studio small world studios and they so there was a there was a scene down there but then merging them together was not something that tended to happen in these small towns and i think electricity were one of the first to go well let's just let's cross the streams and hope that the world doesn't blow up <laughs> um and i suppose how many times did you see them live do you think in that kind of because they were quite uh they burnt bright and fast didn't they so so that that is the question so um i was trying to work this out in fact i I did work it out with them because during the process we went back and and looked at set lists from gigs throughout 96 97 and then in 98 and I think I think I probably saw them 200 times wow wow um like literally so in in 98 so 96 they kind of started getting into the scene in Yeovil and the surrounding towns we'd follow them around everywhere go see what they were up to 
97 they didn't gig quite so prolifically because they were basically writing the music the album and things then in 98 when the the album and everything came out they were actually christened the hardest working band in the uk by the guinness book of records or something ridiculous because i think they did 198 gigs in like 250 days yeah. it was stupid <laughs> and we got in our funny little cars and followed them around to most of those gigs or as many as we could manage so we yeah we saw them a lot and uh it was yeah like i think i think you're i think we were fans right so <laughs> it's safe to say the 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 least you could be called is a fan i think um, yeah. what what do you think it is about the band that inspired such rabid fandom uh, well, in 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 lots of us as well. Do you know what? I think it was genuinely because we saw a little bit of us in them, mm. and you know, we we were never mocked for it either. We, I had friends at school that you know whose parents drove them to every take that concert in right. England. Yeah. You know, and I think people, I think you just see a bit of yourself in something, or you hear something that makes you go like, "All oh, right, okay, I get that." And I know people in the town when we were growing up that really didn't like their music. Hmm. It just wasn't for them. But then I knew people that were kind of like, oh, right, you're singing our songs. These are for us. Hmm. I My first big love was Pearl Jam. And, you know, the first album I bought was, you know, 10. Yeah. And, you know, I had friends that thought that it stunk and just didn't get why I was obsessed with that kind of music. And then so I just I just think they they clicked uh, hmm. in with me and then I think there was a bunch of us that were looking for an escape route out of a sort of beige town. And they looked like a good escape route. Mm. Like we, it wasn't just the music. It was the adventure that they were going to go on, that we were going to go on with them mm. that I think was incredibly inspiring. And I wanted the book to kind of, I guess, allude to that as well and just make sure that people knew that we, they rescued a lot of us from ourselves yeah, because um, like you say in the book, there, there there wasn't a lot of opportunity um, no. at the time. There was a, there's a like a a military technology company or a manufacturer in the town, and you know general kind of factory jobs, which I think was basically it, wasn't it? I remember going to careers advice at my school. So I, I think I'm I'm only a couple of years younger than you. Okay, so there's an analog between what you were experiencing and what I was experiencing, I think, because every single time you name an album in there, you're like, oh, this is what me and my friends were listening to. I'm like, yes, I was doing the yeah, same yeah. thing, like exactly the same albums. But yeah, I think, we... I think, but I, sorry, I just think, I think the other thing you've just described there as well, which is really important for me when I was writing this is, it's not just a, I think it was like, a, it was like a love letter to music. Mm, yeah, that's and what I got I think, very much so, especially yeah. in the early chapters where yeah. you're setting the scene, you know? But I think all of us were who are music lovers or somehow inspired by tunes were taken on journeys by these these artists. We we happened to have our own and that was kind of what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where that pride thing comes from. But I think music can be just wonderful escapism from kind of fairly mundane lives. Mm -hmm. And as you say, having seen them over 200 times, I mean you're kind of perfectly placed to write a book about them i mean tell us a little bit about how that the genesis of this book came yeah. about was this a lockdown project was it has it been bubbling under the surface for a long time has it been gnawing at you for this many years yeah. about you know what happened to the band after they went to america definitely so this this was de this was definitely an itch that i 
was trying to scratch for a long time. And, it, and I think it's really important as well that people don't go, or uh, that I, it's a weird book to write about a band that a lot of people forgot about quite quickly. <laughs> so I've had a few people go like, of all the bands you could have written a book about, like, why that one? And it's just a really incredible story that people never got to hear. And that was part of the itch that I didn't scratch. But the real genesis of it was that they launched, so they released they released this album, Beautiful Insane, in 98. It was not the album that we were expecting to get. So they would, they did the tour of the town. You know, they played these amazing songs. We'd heard them hundreds of times. Then they go off into the studio with producer Robin Miller, you know, that Universal had, had helped them find. They create this album. And I remember playing it for the first time. In fact, I've, I've still got the tape that I bought from <laughs> Acorn Records, right? Um, play it in my car. Doesn't sound any, it's way overproduced. Like it's a crazy concept album. And that that kind of seeped in, that had been there since 98. Like, what are they, why did they do that? Like, why did they take their songs? It's still a brilliant album. It's still, for me, like seminal in, in the, in the uh, 98 year. It's a great, great, great album, but it's just massively overproduced that was the genesis of it right there so i'd always wondered like what the hell happened to that album like how did that thing emerge from those things they go off to america in 2000 they released a second with uh arista when they got signed to arista um dropped by universal signed by by arista they do a second album in america called in here we fall had some banger hits on it like it had some absolute bangers it did really really well in america they never got their props for being one of the only bands to go to America and kind of crack it for a while, had a top 20 in Japan, like they, you know, with Cosmic Castaway, I think it was, or Renegades. Mm. So they just did all this amazing stuff. And then they just vanished, bang, just gone. I was working in technology at the time in London. I'd come up to London by then and was working in technology and they just disappeared. Like the internet led us to a certain place with them. We could follow what was going on on forums and things. And then they just stopped. That was kind of 2003, 2004, had nothing from them. Now, th this is where it got interesting for me. And this is where this kind of obsession started. In 2008, my career took me to um, that passion for music that I had took me to form, like co-found a music startup called Mflow. It was a music platform. It's one of the first sort of legal streaming platforms after Napster and LimeWire and stuff. And part of the deal was we would get these huge we signed these huge record deals with um the majors and they would send us hard drives of all the music to digitize and load onto the platform first thing i did was go looking for beautiful insane that was literally the first thing i did i, I was i was like right find me the album by electricity i've got to play it to you all in the in the office um wasn't there like wasn't there um we had every other song from universal um, every album from Universal and all the other majors like Beautiful Insane did not exist. Mm. So in 2008, that's really where this itch really got itchy because the band had vanished. Then their album had vanished. There was seemingly no reason for it. And I've always been trying to find out what the hell happened there. Uh, then last year, I reconnected with Steve, the guitar player from the band, uh, we swapped some messages over Twitter. Like he found out that, you know, I was big in the technology scene and had questions about some of the AI stuff I was doing. I was started talking to him about how big a fan I was of the band. We just got talking and then they told me what the story behind everything 
that went on was, and I was like, I can now scratch this itch. <laughs> and, it's and it's a mad even, story, isn't it? It's a mad story. And it's, you know, I just thought that maybe, I, I don't know what I thought, but I thought it was, I didn't think it was going to be this. And um, yeah, it's just, it's been a blast. Yeah, I can, I can imagine it is. I mean, having having been to so many gigs, I mean, were you at all friendly with the band, you know, while they were touring the UK before they moved to America? Were you on talking terms with them while they were in the pubs and clubs? Friendly is a strong word. I don't think so, because we were younger and mm. they they had a really good connection with the fans and they did have a big fan base, by the way, they, they, they did have a, by, by 98, they did have a big fan base and they would always acknowledge the kids, the teenagers, the fans that traveled around. So they were regulars. So they knew us uh, and various people that had been on that journey with them. When I met them last year, they had no idea who I was. So they, you know, they didn't go, Oh, you're the kid from 98. Like nobody had any idea, but you know, obviously I think, once we started to unpack some of these things and, oh, you know, so-and-so and I know so-and-so and then it, it, we're from a small town, everybody knows everybody who knows everybody. And then I say, look, these are all the gigs that we went to. And they were like, wow, that's incredible. But I also think, you know, we have to remember that these were young men in a whirlwind of the music industry, sure. which again is also kind of covered in the book. And I'm not saying that they, I just don't, I think they were in in such a, by 98 it was everything was so frenetic and they were touring so aggressively and the label and the trappings of the music industry and fame and all that kind of stuff were going on around them that you know we were just furniture in the background Mm. and i'm cool with that like it doesn't bother me at all but those are things that we've been unpacking over the last year as well quite philosophical Mm. things about fans and bands and it's great yeah no i mean it must be such a a strange full circle moment to, yeah. to get back around to telling the story i mean was it easy getting all of the members to speak about their roles in the band because there was um you know there were members who were fired and replaced <laughs> you know and, and also them being scattered across the globe now as well yeah you know were any of them more or less forthcoming than others was it like pulling teeth with some <laughs> no actually to be fair i picked the right time to to launch into this so there were fractures there were issues there were things that happened during their time together uh we could talk about some of that stuff but just a couple of years ago they actually all got back together to record this new album so they that was a kind of a lockdown thing that they did um Mm. that i was not even you know on the scene with them for they sort of built some bridges worked out technically how to record an album across four different continents, Mm. you know, made amends, got a lot of the skeletons out of the closet and stuff, started creating this incredible album, which came out this year. So they were already kind of all on speaking terms. And that was one of the reasons that they thought, well, actually, when I said to them, I've written a book before, like I I know the process of, of literature, I know how to do this. I think I could tell your story and we could get that out at the same time as the album. They were all in. So Getting them to talk was not the issue. The time zones is an issue. Obviously, you have to all get to know each other in a way where everybody feels comfortable and they have to know that I'm not some kind of exploitative journalist scumbag that just wants to like spew them all over the internet or anything like that. So once we got comfortable and the process was going, it, it was actually really easy. There's a few people that just did not want to take part at all. 
which again was like really part of the story in itself because I'm like, well, what? hang on a minute. That guy not only didn't want to speak to me, he basically slammed the door in my face. Like well, there's a story there. Right. Um, yeah. But then what we also managed to do throughout this process, which I thought was really beautiful is there are actually a whole bunch of people that contributed that they hadn't seen for a long time and did come out, you know, willingly and, we connected with Glenn, the old DJ that I mentioned, mm. and there's a beautiful human being called Ronnie that was on one of their singles. Mm. Um, we found Ronnie and Ronnie chipped in and then John Sweet, the producer that did the original demos, whose story in the book is also really incredible from the, you know his garage in Yeovil where those demos were recorded. Yeah. You know, they hadn't spoke yeah. to him for 20 years and he contributed and then we got you know the band back together with him for the first time in you know 20 odd years which was beautiful as well so we almost ended up having too much material that ended up being a bit of an issue so how did you cut it down i mean i assume there were probably some stories that weren't publishable and they were easy yes. to cut but i'm sure there were other things that were harder to cut so how i've never i'm i'm a journalist by trade so i know yeah. the ins and outs of having too much information and how to like try and cut your darlings a little bit but, yeah. Um, yeah. In a book, I don't, you know, I've, I've never tried writing a book before. So take us through a bit of the process of that editing. Yeah. We, so we didn't set a limit. We, we set a skeleton. So we knew because this is a story that runs chronologically, it's really easy because you come mm. start at a certain date and, you know, you have to end at a certain date. So that was really good. We pieced all that together. And, and that process at the start was actually very cathartic for everybody. So that was kind of, you know, putting stories on a timeline my story their story you know albums events that was really good and then hypothesizing well actually if i wrote and we unpacked that story and it's x amount of words and then that one and that one and that one that would get us to a number and i just kind of went with it we we've got so many articles that again help paint the picture so we've got there's some of it i don't even need to write because you know, we've got the NME articles and the Melody Maker and all the local press clippings that Steve captured. And again, they were in boxes sort of getting ready to fall apart and rot. And I was able to use some AI technology to effectively grab the text off those and clean it up and plop it into the book really quickly. Mm. We got to 125,000 words, like really rapidly. Then it was a it was a kind of an edit and a chop. Some, like you said, some of the stories we just thought were inappropriate to publish. Some <laughs> of them I did manage to squeeze in with some really good in insurance. Um, so it was, it, it kind of, we just kind of knew when it was finished. We kind of hit hit a date and we kind of knew when it was done. To be honest with you, I, my wife will hate me for saying this, but I would quite happily see another volume come in at some point. Wow. Electricity part because, two. Well, because they kind of feel like they're just getting going again now. And their sure. new music is kind of better than their old music. And I think they've probably got another four albums in them. Um, I don't think the the ride is going to be as wild, but I just have a feeling once they start releasing new music, different people are going to come out of the woodworks with things to say and contribute. And it's like, okay, there's more there. So I don't know, but um, it watch is good this fun. space. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. Like it's it's we've certainly got we've certainly got some stuff brewing. There's mm. certainly some bits and bobs like happening right now, which I think are almost a better end to the story than writing more words we found the album and not just the album that was released that i talk about in the book as being not disappointing but confusing hmm. um that they talk about a lot in the book about being like we found the demos so you know they have the opportunity now 
to release the version of the album that it should have been and not the album version of the album that it was. Oh, the original um, album, Beautiful Insane. Yep. So, oh, right. Interesting. Because as you were saying, when you were trying to find it all those years ago, when you set up your music startup, you couldn't find the album online. And actually, I always try and listen to the back catalogue of the bands that I'm talking about so that I can get a broad overview. And also while I was reading it, I kind of had them on quietly in the background. So I was kind of seeping the music in as I was reading about it. And I had to go onto YouTube to find a playlist that someone had put together of those songs because it just doesn't exist anymore, does it? And there's a hypothesis that links in with the fact that Universal didn't give you um, or couldn't give you access to that material yeah you universal universal were pissed off like they were they were not happy with that album they spent you know they spent a lot of money they went to abbey road to record some of it you know they'd got robin miller this incredible producer they 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 didn't get the album that they were expecting Mm -hmm. and i think it irritated them like a lot um and to the, 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 I think they thought they were going to get like an Oasis style Britpop album that would mm. appeal to that kind of audience. And they got this album of, you know, some of the track, one of the tracks on it, Chemical Angel, sounds like a Prodigy song. Yeah. And not a great one either, but, you know, just <laughs> it sounds, it sounds like some sort of crazy sort of. Um, well, it is a know, rave sp- track, isn't it? Basically. Yeah. And it's and about so, like, the same it, kind of subject matter as well. You know, it's, it's yeah. in the title, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was mad. And, it, you know, it had all these these kind of references to various things on, on the album. So so they kind of, they just, not only did they not release the album, like they just kind of stopped, man, they stopped making it on CD and vinyl, which is all you can get now on like eBay and, and things like that. When everything was being digitized, they just didn't bother digitizing it. And then there was that fire in, LA where actually a lot of the universal masters were being kept. And that was in kind of 2007, 2008, there was this huge fire at a warehouse where a lot of British dat tapes were being stored by a lot of huge artists like the police and stuff. Yeah. Well, I covered, I covered that in um, one of the documentary episodes that I did on um, the damned and Susie and the Banshees. Okay. Right. A a bunch of those bands and even, you know, historical blues albums uh, or recordings and, and, like priceless things that can and it's all gone it can never be remixed as you say nothing could ever be done like the beatles have just done or electricity may do in the future with the ai you know improving the originals to some of those songs and it's really really quite sad yeah and i I, the only and universal basically stonewalled me on the book as well they were not interested in contributing at all they had no um nobody wanted to even acknowledge that that band even existed like it was like it was like come on they had a top 20 like it was a big song um they had another couple of tracks in in the top 20 they sold a couple of hundred thousand albums like it wasn't like crazy Coldplay numbers or anything like that but Hmm. you know they weren't insignificant they were playing TFI Friday on a Friday night on TV to 8 million people like people knew who they were yeah and yet you've buried this album um and I think it's because it just doesn't exist anymore. It's literally been like destroyed. So, um, so back to my point, but we found the, the demos that they recorded originally in the Oval Garage, hmm. um, which feels like if we could get those out the door and I've listened to the album in that form, it sounds better than the universal version, 
it sounds like the band that I used to listen to in those pubs in Yeovil. And I've kind of said, if you could please just get these done, like we just get these out, then that might be the next chapter of the book that I don't need to write. Like it's, mm. it's literally the, the conclusion. So yeah, exciting. I hope they do it. I hope they so do, do it. I, because I've become a bit of a fan actually, since, uh, since, since you sent the book to me and I've started listening to their stuff. Like I say, I can't believe that I didn't, I, I can't remember morning afterglow especially because it sounds like the kind of stuff that was in the charts at the time clearly it was in the charts at the time they were playing on tfi friday they were at radio one western supermare weren't they playing alongside all the and other weymouth. bands of the day and weymouth yeah so yeah quite how they passed me by i'm not entirely sure but you know making up for lost time now hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And and actually, what's quite interesting, bearing in mind that you're in the technology space is that electricity story ties in with the birth of the MP3 yes. and the, and the internet. And that is another major spoke in the wheel of this story. Um, yes. I, um, one of the, one of the stories that I did quite um, that I didn't realize was the first MP3 fidelity test was on Tom's diner. Tom's diner. Yeah. Which I didn't realize. I thought it would be something like comfortably normal. One of those other, kind of lush no. prog songs that they used to test speaker cabinets out with 
No, uh, Tom Steiner was the one, and it was um, in the by the German uh, company whose name I forget. Um, it's because it covers so many different optics, right. and it's it was relatively easy to digitize, but then it's actually quite a complex song. Hmm. That I didn't know either until we were looking at this, and we were looking at. So what happened was when we put this timeline of things together for the book. I then started to place on top of that timeline like significant events in the music industry for no other reason than I thought it would be kind of fun to, you know, point out some of these junctions for all bands. Mm. And when I plopped them on top of the timeline, I realized that this band we loved had broke onto the scene, got a record deal, started getting momentum almost at exactly the same time as piracy napster mp3 you know technology blah 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 and all these different heartbeats in the technology industry kind of map to these different moments in their journey as well mm. so, like they they were and and thousands and thousands thousands of other bands were effectively victims of piracy yeah literally had no idea because they were in their kind of weird touring whirlwind you know lifestyle as bands are yeah they had no idea. They had absolutely no idea that, you know, Universal and Arista, the two record labels, had seen their profits half in, you know, almost overnight, just as they'd tanked a load of money on one of the, you know, this band. Suddenly they're in financial crisis. They didn't realize that, you know, when they were in America and their first American album had done really well, that Arista were, you know, trying to work out what the heck to do and where to cut their cloth and, and who to drop to try and shore up cash because you know napster limewire and BitTorrent were were kind of eating away at, at their profits by mm. some substantial amount as well so that that technology thread i think is kind of ironically all the way through this yeah it's, it's still just, bigger now it just strikes me as interesting that you know this is the story of one band but it could be the story yeah. of like you say any number of thousands of bands really that were kind of on the cusp but not quite they didn't quite have the juice behind them, especially in the, uh, you know, the kind of political realm and the financial realm of these record companies that were obviously grappling with things on the business side. And all of a sudden it makes sense to just slash the bottom line, essentially. And, and how many bands has this happened to? How many electricities are out there, you know? Oh, tens of thousands and you know millions of artists that either never got a shot or were just on the ascendancy when they had to change the business model hmm. um and also like electricity just it's why i love them and they're great human beings outside the band as well they never played the game they they were never um like yes men and they never they never did anything, you know, if the labels told them to zig, they'd zag. And it was like, that's not what people like Coldplay and stuff have done. They've no. played the game really, really well. And they've, you know, done all the right things. And they've they've played along nicely. And they've, you know, sold out stadiums and stuff because they've got people telling them what to do. And they go away and do it. They actually didn't do that. Hmm. They were probably top of Universal's list. And then probably Arista's list, Arista's list as well. When they were going, we got to get rid of one of these bands. Like, which one? I mean, they go... That one right there, like get rid of them. The <laughs> they're, not, they're, they're definitely they're not going to play our game. So they yeah. go. They seemed like they uh, were intent on having fun 
all oh, the time. Massive, <laughs> massive amounts of fun. They 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 indulged in all of the best parts of being rock bands, which is what you want from your rock stars, right? One hundred percent. I mean, I, you can't begrudge them that. I begrudge them getting dropped twice because I wanted to follow them around, you know, for the rest of my life. But um, uh, they definitely had a they definitely had a good time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you, you managed to follow them to Dublin once as well, which uh, was an interesting story. <laughs> actually, one of the more edgy stories was actually involving yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, no, so te- so I didn't follow them to Dublin. Um, I it was actually I was actually at no, the very last gig was done at Lansdowne Road. It was an Oasis gig. It was on the Standing on the Shoulders tour. Oh, I think. sorry, and it was an Oasis gig. You know what? No, but it is it is an electric thing. So this is the kind of other thing about electric is they even when it's not even even when it's not electric, it's still electric. They've just <laughs> kind of like bugged us our whole lives. We um yeah, we went to Oasis at Lansdowne Road in Dublin and we had a we had an absolute belter of a time. I think it was 2000. And after the gig, a load of I you know the Irish had said, well well one thing during the gig i had noticed which was that i i remember i distinctly remember watching oasis at the time and thinking we've got a band that's better than this <laughs> genuinely so uh, that's that hometown pride thing again i remember thinking ali mckinnell was a much better front man than liam gallagher whatever mm. um love you liam if you're listening um <laughs> but then so then the irish these irish guys say to us oh everyone's going down to this place called leeson street and it's a uh, lower Leeson Street. It's down in in uh, Dublin, just off Temple Bar. So we follow them down there, and it's basically the red light district of Dublin at the time, if they had one. Um, it's just kind of strip clubs and seedy night bars and and stuff like that. And my best friend Neil says to me, "Let's go in that one over there. There's a bar over there called Angels, which happens to be one of the most popular electric songs. It's a beautiful track called Angels." Yeah. So we were just like, "Oh, let's just go in there because that's kind of the first signal that." of electricity pointing us in a direction go into this bar and it's really you know not particularly pleasant i get talking to one of the people that's working there shall we say um <laughs> and i recognize her accent and she happens to be from yeovil of all the places in the world <laughs> to bump into somebody there's a kind of basically a stripper from yeovil in a in a dive bar in dublin <laughs> And I joked with her, oh, we only came in because of the, bar, the, the bar's called Electricity, uh, uh, Angel by Electricity, at which point she's like, oh, I'm a big fan of Electricity. <laughs> and we probably sat at the bar for an hour and just talked about the back catalogue and, you know, and here we fall. <laughs> uh, beautiful Insane, that was that was my trip to Dublin. It still <laughs> got cannibalised by Electricity. It's great. Uh, it's brilliant. It's that and uh, the story of Ali meeting um, the head of Arista Records as well. That yeah, Clive Davis. Yeah, one of the absolute standout anecdotes yes. from the from the band. Yeah, the Clive Davis story is a is a is a wonderful <laughs> wonderful thing. Do you want me to tell it? Uh, yeah, go ahead, please do. I got mean, time? Yeah, oh, all the time you want. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, so I think I think your listeners should probably Google Clive Davis Arista. He's an impressive man. He's a very impressive man, but then the story kind of makes sense. So <laughs> they got binned by Universal. When he told me the story, I was like, I was crying. I was like, you've allowed me to write this down. <laughs> what a privilege this has been. So um, the the band got dropped by Universal. Steve and Nigel were still kind of uh, the guitar player and the, the kind of songwriter, bass player. They were kind of down in London, sort of hawking around, trying to 
you know, they've got some extra some new tracks. They're looking for new management and new label or whatever. Ali's gone up to Glasgow to live with his, you know, then girlfriend at the time. And they'd, um, you know, just kind of in a bit of a rut. Nigel gets a phone call saying, there's a guy at the Dorchester Hotel wants to see you. Can you go tomorrow? So they go down to the Dorchester. They go up to the penthouse in the Dorchester. They're greeted by, you know, the various execs. You say, we've got somebody here that wants to meet you. And it's Clive Davis, the head of Arista. So he's in, he's the founder of Arista Records in America. He's like a big deal, you know. He's like the you know one of the godfathers of the the sort of contemporary music industry in America. Clive's very impressed. He loves the demo. Like he he thinks that they've got this you know great song called Renegades, which is on the second album. Um, and I've got that demo as well, by the way. It's outstanding. The actual demo version. Right. But then Clive says to them. I don't like you guys are good, but I need to meet the guy. Like I need to meet this charismatic front guy you've got. Like, where is he? Uh, I need him here by tomorrow because I'm flying back to America. So they panic bring Ali. They say, Ali, you've got to come down to London. Like now uh, we've got this guy that wants to meet us uh, to meet you. And, you know, this could be the next shot in the arm that we needed. Ali being the rock star or the wannabe rock star that he was, is flies down on the plane gets absolutely plastered on free booze on the plane on the way down from Glasgow, gets to the Dorchester, goes up in the lift. And actually, now that I've got to know Ali, he's a, he's a really soft soul. And I imagine he was probably masking quite a lot of nerves and anxiousness as well. Sure. Um, you know, he walks into the suite. He feels like he has to put on the big rock star act, um, which is what he does. He gets even more drunk, like drinking out the minibar and stuff like that. Big Clive Davis walks in uh, to meet Ali and Ali starts calling him Mike. So <laughs> Ali then proceeds to call him Mike for uh, interrupt Clive, you know, call him Mike, <laughs> give him the big one about like why, why Electri the best band on the planet and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. The execs that are kind of cowtowering and surrounding Clive Davis are all in kind of like panic and tailspin. Who is this guy? He's coming here. He's offending our boss, blah, blah, blah. Clive Davis loves it. Anyway, it transpires, and again, this is why I say everyone needs to look at a picture. It transpires that um, Ali thought it was Mike Reed who plays Frank, but who played <laughs> Frank Butcher in EastEnders, because Clive Davis and Mike Reed are like doppelgangers. Like they look it's exactly very, like, like. There's a photo in the book, and when I turned the page, I thought, well, yeah, I can see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But even weirder, like three months before, they'd been on TFI Friday performing Best Friends Girl and Mike Reed was one of the guests on oh, TFI goodness. Friday. So it was like in Ali's head. So Ali was drunk, walked into the, the penthouse at the Dorchester. He meets this guy. He's got no idea why Frank Butcher from EastEnders is like interviewing him, but he just assumes it is, calls him Mike for the, um, the entire meeting. At which point Clive Davis goes, I like this guy. I like you. He's got some uh, something about him, and he he signed them on the spot. So um, you got to wonder if it had been different if Ali had turned up, been on his best behaviour, and called him like well, that's Sir it, isn't it? meeting. Yeah, and like you say, this guy signed everyone from Barry Manilow to Pink Floyd, Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen, yeah. Santana. It's ridiculous the roster that are on Arista Records that are in this book. It's, it's, it's nuts. And then by the next day, he flew him out to New York. The next day to yeah. do a showcase for the execs. Like that was it. And that's kind of when the band disappeared and the UK stopped hearing anything about them because mm. Ali got drunk, called one of the most powerful people <laughs> in the music industry, not Clive, and got sent sent to New York, sent to the naughty step in New York. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's absolutely mad. And, you know, the band changed its style a little bit and went a little bit kind of almost, they went a little bit new metal on that second it album. Did, yeah. it's, a, it's definitely a, a more American sounding album, isn't very, it? Um, and much. again, the release of that coincided with Davis's being replaced at Arista. And yep. uh, again, it was all just bad, bad timing, wasn't it? You know, terrible timing terrible timing they did i mean they did a big tour with um they'd already done a big tour in the uk with fun and criminals they were doing a big tour in the us with like buck cherry and uh, another band who i forget so they were they were on the on the up they'd they'd re-released some of the uk songs on that second album so like morning afterglow is on both albums which is right. kind of weird Angels on both albums I think there were better songs on the second album than Morning Afterglow that would have been better for the American audience, like Foot yeah. Soldiers and stuff. Somebody made the decision to release the kind of slow ballad as their single in the US, which maybe wasn't the best idea. But yeah, there's some, uh, again, there's some bangers on that second album. Oh, definitely. Cosmic Castaway. Yeah. I mean, Cosmic yeah. Castaway that's on the album is is still their biggest. It's had like, I think it's 3 million streams now, um, mm. Cosmic Castaway, because it was on the soundtrack to Titan AE. Yeah, I mean it's huge. It's kind of it's it, it's still viral on TikTok now. That song, that's mad, isn't it? But I mean, it's from yeah. two thousand as well. It's twenty three yeah. years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. It's crazy. And the rest of the story, it's just it's it's this kind of it's almost like a nosedive, isn't it? It's from yeah. there it kind of it gets really not bleak, but just depressing, really, isn't it? You know, yeah. the entire music industry has changed. The rug gets pulled out from under their feet, and actually. You know, coming back to where we are now with the with the members, because they were living on separate continents even then, weren't they? Like one of them was living yeah. in Australia. There were people in the UK and, and Ali was in the US. No, Nigel was in the US. Was it Nigel, Nigel was sorry. And it just feels like in a strange way, now is the perfect time for electricity to kind of re-energize yeah. and, 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 and kind of get back into it. Because, as you said, the technology is there now the music industry is not so all-encompassing and powerful as it was you know the big uh, you don't need to have a massive record deal no. to get decent streams on on spotify or apple or whatever although you know uh, spotify recently changed the way that they pay out their artists which yeah. has caused a lot of controversy for mid to low level bands basically means that anyone who isn't who hasn't already got a lot of juice behind them anyway is not going to get paid yeah. going forward which i think is a terrible terrible thing it's a, it's really difficult i mean even a, even electricity now are making less money on royalties with an entire back catalog like five albums than they're making in royalties from the book to put it into perspective wow like yeah and there's six members of the band right so you know they they don't wash their own face with what Spotify pays them mm. off off two and a half million streams a year or whatever it is. Yeah. And actually it doesn't really matter. And that that's from a couple of the songs. Like if people find those songs and then start listening to the rest of the back catalog, which they're starting to do, I think it's phenomenal that people were discovering their music re or rediscovering their music again, yeah. but financially forget it. Like it does, it doesn't work. The industry is still, if not more broken than it was during piracy. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? You know, the, the technology democratized the music making process, but unfortunately it doesn't spread the wealth no. anywhere near 
as far as it used to. I mean, even when iTunes was, you know, 99p a track, you'd make a decent amount of money off those. You know, you'd, you'd make 70p off a 99p download. And that yeah. seemed okay. And then when streaming came through, that was when the bottom fell out for anyone who wasn't already an established artist. And exactly. like, again, it comes back to that, the the old chestnut of like, oh, we're not going to pay you to play, but it's great exposure, which I yeah. hate. It's the worst thing in the world. It's like, yeah, all right, I'm on Spotify and I'm on Apple. And that means I'm on the biggest, plat- you know, music streaming platforms yeah. in the world. But so is everyone else. You're exactly. In this, and people you know, still got to find you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's great that, you know, to the other side came out and it's encouraging people to go back and discover the back catalogue. That's great. Yes. But yeah, for it, for it to be a kind of touring concern again, it, it's, it's, I mean, I don't even know because there's 360 deals now as well, where, you know, a lot of the time it was more profitable for bands to go out on tour and sell merch. But now you've got the the clubs and the uh, and the arenas taking a massive percentage of merch sales for nothing yeah. like they're not even staffing these things it's just a tax yeah. on the band it's it, oh, it's just it's madness that music has been undervalued as much as it has in the last 20 years i think it, i i think it's genuinely a concerning time for artists you can only make music for the love of making music mm. and i hope that you know a dedicated group of people listening to it listen to it the idea that you know unless you're kind of being played on capital every day 10 times you're going to make enough money to be able to like pay the bills mm-hmm. i mean it's just it, it does it's really quite an odd situation yeah I'm planning a tour with the band or the band are planning a tour uh which obviously i'm going to be at um next year and it's you know even that is is really really exciting get them back on the same in the same country, do a little tour of the Southwest and festivals and things like that. But it's got to be done for, for love and fun, not profit. In fact, they'll make a, they'll make a loss on it by the time everyone's flown in, got accommodation and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But it, they still want to do it because they love making music and love touring and they're playing with each other. And I saw them at the weekend playing three gigs in Pembrokeshire and they, you know, they, there's, there's a chemistry there and they love playing it, but you mm. know, it, it didn't, it doesn't pay anything. It's, but it's a symptom of the industry i think Mm. i think everyone that i know in bands in general i mean i don't know many people in incredibly successful bands but i know people in middling bands that you know tour a fair amount and almost everyone's got a day job that they do on the road and it's it's uh it's a hard old life but we we play music because we love it yeah exactly which in a weird way comes back to that original thing i said about you know it was just it just you've got to do it for the mental health and the soul like you know we were following them around because it gave us something to do and it was kind of a happy time and stuff like that and i guess if you strip the industry away from that sort of a music without industry equals the same thing they're doing it and bands mm-hmm. are doing it for their health and well-being and love and joy and that's brilliant like it's great but um don't expect to pay the bills with it yeah it's unfortunate no one can be a full-time artist anymore and and, and that, that kind of brings us around again like the technology aspects we've kind of covered a little bit on here that you're 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 a bit of a polymath you you're you're an author you've written other books on on kind of business and, and technology and stuff like that you mentioned your music platform i mean it sounded like from the description of 
the music platform that you set up that it was actually going to be paying a fair amount as well these are in the early days of this yeah. kind of thing where where there was a fair payout for the artists which is great well, that was our that was our business model our business model was kind of post piracy model where we wanted to pay we wanted to pay the pirates and the artists that was kind of our disruptive play what we wanted to do was flip the people that were trading music illegally online into effectively advocates of their favorite bands share it socially so share the music but then have people they were sharing it with effectively buy that music so mm. it was, the whole concept of the platform that we were building was like it's like twitter for music so you get the stream of recommendations from these people that ordinarily would be trading illegally mm. if i bought a track that tom recommended to me i'd get 20 pence back on my account to buy more music off the stream right. um and then the artist would make the rest and then the label would take their bit and blah 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 and it was actually financially it was going to do really, really like for everybody it was going to do really well and then um uh, it's called mflow um the year we launched spotify also launched with a free model <laughs> so it's like what we've literally just worked out how to pay everybody for their music and then spotify giving it away for free and this is the difference between a technology company putting a music yes. platform out and music lovers putting a music yes. platform out like there were in the early days companies like yourself at mflow that actually put a value on the yeah. on the product that you were that you were um that you were distributing we were trying to rescue the industry from from itself i dare anybody listening to this to find me and tweet tweet it to me or x me or whatever it's called now <laughs> um you know if you find it like literally send it to me i challenge anybody to find an interview with daniel week where he's talking about artist music favorite song favorite album who he's a fan of like i honestly i challenge anybody to do that he never no. talks about music no because he's a businessman he's a he's a technology entrepreneur it's it's nothing to do yeah. with it's about yeah the making profits for the book i just uh, it bores if he my does blood. <laughs> if he does listen to music i bet it's something like enya that's what i reckon <laughs> smooth jazz <Yeah>. lift, <laughs> lift music um, <laughs> but yeah so um like i said i'll try i'll try and take it away from the angry side of things um yeah so what what's kind of driven you in your life and career i suppose because you you've kind of you've had a career in tech or you have a career in technology but it's kind of spun out into kind of tedx speaking yeah and uh campaigning for suicide prevention and, and men's health yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that like where is that drive where how how has that come about everything everything i've ever done is human centered or human focused so that's like basically my philosophy for everything so every piece of technology i've ever designed built distributed has had some kind of human focus or purpose like if we're going to build this thing it might as well have a positive outcome an impact on a group of people you know and and i think that's always so that at the heart of what i do has always been there and that's why you know even doing the stuff we were doing with the music platform was about positive outcome. Um, there's a lot of negativity in the world, man. And it's like, I think we should, we sh if people focus their talent on positive outcomes, then I think the world will be a much better place. And that's a bit of a kind of, you know, bit of a philosophical moment. Sorry about that. But, and I like, but I genuinely believe that. And so even, mm. even though I'm, I'm a technologist by trade um, and a kind of designer in at heart, 
even my first book, which was about technology and AI and data, was called Human Focused Digital. And it is literally a philosophy of kind of, you know, amplify the very best parts of humanity, don't erode it. Um, mm. And so much technology does erode it. So I kind of fight against that. I've pointed technology at, at like you said, suicide prevention, and I've pointed it at kind of health debt. Like I'm always pointing technology at problems that need to be solved. And then in the last year, I kind of pointed it at a couple of things, but then I ended up pointing it at my favorite band, <laughs> which is, uh, but again, it was brilliant because I thought at the same time, because a lot of technology went into making this book. I mean, that, that is, you know, to reclaim so much stuff that was lost mm. as there is this huge technical achievement in some of the pictures that have been upscaled using AI and blah, blah, blah. I was going to say, so a lot of the pictures that are included in the book have been upscaled as you say using ai there's a lot of the um the press clippings and stuff you were saying they've been basically saved from uh crumbling and and turning to dust every interview every interviewer so every line of copy from the band so the book is laced with kind of my story if you like my narrative and then the band chip in all the way through that's all voice to text so that was you know every everything that they say is is literally their words from like zoom into text into book i did wonder that actually because there are some kind of filler words that get in there do you know what i mean like that aren't the way that you might write them if you were all writing phonetic. it as a yeah yeah it's all phonetic so it's all their voice the you know and um, what the other thing that's that's wonderful about that and again i guess is a little bit of a kind of a lead on to what might we might do next is because i have hours and hours and hours of audio interviews with the band the ai generating an audio book in their own words with that is super easy like i can replicate all their voices and we've already had a little play and, and we found some pretty good kind of deep fake replication tools for Wow. Some of their vo- like their voices, so they could they can narrate their own story, and I don't have to go into a studio and you know hire a studio to do all of that stuff. So that's yeah. great. So I think you know every page has got a piece of technology on it in some way. Every picture, all the bits of like torn up paper that are in the book, like every picture and every Polaroid is effectively kind of batch processed using generative AI, which ordinarily I'd be doing for a brand somewhere professionally, and I was like, let's just do it for this. Like it'd be great. How much fun is that? suppose it provides you with a proof of concept as well <laughs> which is great proof, yeah it. great proof of concept um <laughs> we did 125,000 words it's not perfect but they weren't perfect as a band and their music isn't perfect so we kind of agreed <laughs> we decided that if it was a bit scratchy and scrappy that kind of fits with their mold yeah yeah five months end to end for a 125,000 word book last time i did a book of a similar size was about 12 and a half months wow so that's a real compression there's your case study of tech speed, you know, the pace. Yeah. I mean, I, I use stuff like Otter AI for transcribing my interviews that I do professionally as well. And have, have done that for years now. And I, I've found from the early days of me having to go through and back and listen to the recordings and type it down as quickly as I can. Like it's so much easier. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then great. chat GTP has come in and that's kind of helped a lot with being able to craft better stories, I think. Yeah. Like if you know how to interrogate it properly and give it the right information to give you the best possible outcome for it. I never use it to write entire 
uh, articles. I would like to get that out there in case any of my employers or clients are listening. <laughs> um, but I do use it as a tool. I think they're brilliant tools. Well, that they... came out. I mean, that that chat GPT came out as we as we were getting going with this. And mm. again, like you, we didn't do any writing with it. I didn't do any any of the writing with it, but it ended up being a really good fact checker and sense checker and inspirer. So even that first chapter where I'm describing Yeovil, as an author, you have to kind of, you've got the image in your head and you want to kind of put that down on paper and things like that. I knew what I wanted to say, but I didn't know how to start. So I would get ChatGPT. I would say, can you describe a, you know, dingy little town from the 1980s? And it would give me 200 words and I'd look at it and I'd go like, okay, right. Okay. There's the click in my head exactly. and I'll use that to kind of then type my version of it. And it was great. And I'd, I'd like it, there were a couple of sentences that might have crept from ChatGPT's version into my version, but by and large, it was all me. But just to, to get that brain matter firing and the inspiration was great. Sometimes it can give you a different perspective that you hadn't even thought about. You know, it gives yeah. you a prompt that you're like, oh, yeah, I've yeah. never even thought about it from that from that angle before. So, that, yeah, I, you know, it's amazing. I, I'm not in the AI is coming to take all our jobs camp. I'm in the AI is coming to help us in the large part if you use it correctly. Exactly. Well, I mean, here's, so here's the other one, which I forgot to mention, which this I mean, this really did blow my mind. And I was getting as ex- I remember ringing up Steve or messaging Steve and going like, we need to talk like I think I've just cracked open Pandora's box for years and years. I've been building these like bots go off and look for information for some of the suicide prevention stuff and some of the ethically. So like, I don't trawl the internet looking for people, you know, it's all, everything I do has got a, a lens of ethics across it. So we've been, you know, I've been pretty good at trawling the internet for information using bots for years and years and years now. And like, I got this bot and I sent it off to bring me back whatever it could find about electricity. So, you know, fill this pot up with information, whatever you can find, just bring it back kind of a really clever kind of search mechanism. And it went back to, it went through Wayback Machine. So if anybody's not aware of this, yeah. there's something called the Wayback Machine, which is effectively the internet archive. So every, I think it's like every week, the internet backs up the internet yeah. and puts it into this archive. And this bot that we built had basically gone back over all of Electricity's web pages from like 2002 back to like... 98 because they had a they were relatively you know, early doors into the internet era and it basically scraped like four years of blog posts images oh, wow. um and like weird musings and the fan forums because remember we used to yeah, like yeah, right. drop, we used to go and drop comments on notice boards and forums and stuff yeah and it was and it pulled it all back and then that one piece of like ai that went off came back just boom like there's all this material I even found comments that I left in okay. their forum, from <laughs> which was incredible because it's wow. like Pete Machine, which used to be the thing I used online. That was always me. Like that was my handle online for everything. <laughs> and I'm like searching around in this archive of stuff that this, this AI bot brought back. And I'm like, there's my comment from 1999. Wow. Like, how crazy is that? That's incredible. And just like what? Yeah. So the uh, technology is like technology is great if you do it for the right things yeah i use Wayback to source some of the material that i do for the documentary episodes that i produce right. on here as well i think it's an excellent resource pete i don't want to keep you too much longer i'm aware we've almost done 
like we're, we're coming up for well over an hour and a half now um i do want to make sure that people know the name of the book it is calling all the dreamers the untold story of electricity by pete trainer it's well worth seeking out buying reading and then getting to know a band that had all but slipped into obscurity but now are back with a brand new album called to the other side which was released a couple of months back yeah it's awesome as well and there's more coming down in the pipeline in the future i'd also like to point people towards your tedx talks as well because i've watched a couple of them in the last few days and they're brilliant especially a very touching one about the guy james dunn yeah who who suffered from a very rare disability called eb i can't remember the uh the the full name of it it's got a really long epidermabilitis bullosa that's the one <laughs> yeah there you go and yeah that was a, that was incredibly touching and moving when you do those tedx talks do, does is that for the eb charity or you know uh, do... i mean i did that one that was one and done so that was right. for james okay supposed to do it but um Deborah's the eb charity it's an amazing charity does really incredible work with a very complicated genetic uh, disability but yeah again like all those things thank you for for mentioning those i just like telling human stories there's a human in the middle of every single thing isn't there and i think those are the people that we should be celebrating not the technology so much and james was an awesome guy the guys in electri are awesome uh you're awesome um so thank you for telling my story yeah no, thank you for writing it and thank you for getting in touch with me about the book in the first place. Otherwise, I'd never have known. So what's next for you now? I mean, obviously, you're doing a bit of work with Electricy on, you know, new projects and stuff, possibly what's happening professionally. Uh, I don't know, really, actually. I'm not I'm not thinking about it too much as well. I'm busy with work stuff. I do a lot of advisory work, helping a lot of brands with their kind of AI strategy. I try very hard to get this. I'm deep deeply involved in quite a, a lot of governance and ethics stuff around AI at the moment with the government and things like that, because there's obviously a ton going on. Um, yeah. uh, it's a really busy time for somebody that knows even a tiny amount about AI. Mm. So it's good, but I'd like to be doing more fun stuff with the lecture, if I'm honest. <laughs> My midlife crisis is like <laughs> pulling me in. It's um, getting the band back together. <laughs> we've got, they're, they're back together. I'm like, I'm just going to come and carry your bags. Like, how do we make this financially work for me? So, Brilliant. And finally, where can people find you if they wanted to follow you, get in touch, watch all this? Uh, I'm on the socials. Stuff. I'm on the socials. Uh, I'm on the Twitter thing. It's just uh, at Pete Trainer. I have a website. It's trainer.fyi. But more importantly, go to electricy.online way more important than me electricy.online and there's links to the book their albums their their socials which you know i'm on anyway they can find me via those socials so go find the band and you'll see me lurking in the background like a weird stalker <laughs> brilliant and buy the book buy the merch buy, the book. buy everything you know yeah, spend all the, money all the profits go back into the band for the tour next year so it's worth doing it. it's like a charity book there you go. You'll be funding a tour if you buy the book. Very good. Pete, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story, sharing the story Love of this. electricity. And uh, I'm going to press stop, but don't go anywhere.
There you go. What a great chat that was. Pete's a lovely guy and incredibly busy, so I really appreciate and thank him for taking the time to chat with me, as well as sending me a copy of his book, which in turn opened my ears to the work of Electricy. Let me know what you think of their music on social media, or perhaps you were already fans. Either way, let me know on the socials. Be sure to check the band out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Electricy, as well as at electricy.co.uk or electricy.shop where you can buy their music, merch and Pete's book, Calling All the Dreamers. Alternatively, you could visit Pete's website, trainer.fyi, to buy any of his books, see some of his amazing work and watch his various talks. They're well worth it. All the links are in the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and do get in touch online. But until next time, take very good care of yourselves. Thank you for listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.